Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. and welcome to our deep sea domain this is under consultation an episode by episode podcast type situation through the uk's greatest video game challenge tv show games master i am one of your hosts luke owen and i don't muck around with banter and i look smell and taste like ash versus this episode aired on the 20th of February 1997, Tomb Raider tops the video game charts, Ransom is still top of the box office, but you 2 are kicking it at the top of the pops at the discotheque. It's a U2 song, it's always going to be divisive really, there's only a few U2 songs that are just categorically bangers. I'm I'm not the biggest U2 fan in the world. Uh, uh, granted, I don't think it's particularly fair of me to say that uh, whether I am or not a fan of U2, I've never given a whole album a go. I've only heard singles. And really, a lot of my exposure to U2 is latter-day U2. It's, you know, beautiful day U2, that sort of era of Bono and Friends that, I, that I'm most uh, familiar with. Really, the only... U2 songs from this period of time that I know is Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me because it was from the Batman Forever soundtrack which is unequivocally a banger of a track. And if on your UCP drinking game card you had Luke makes a reference to Batman Forever, take a drink. Well, of course you do. It's one of the better Batman movies. I mean, it's definitely in the top four Batman movies made in the late 80s through mid 90s. I stand by Batman forever. It's the Batman movie the studio always wanted. Safe, dependable Batman movie. And it's no Batman and Robin. Which I will also defend because at least that movie knows what it is. It's a toy commercial. It's a toy advert and it knows it's a toy advert and it makes no bones about the fact that it's a toy advert. Amazingly with this song, I mean, it got to number one in a number of countries, not just us, Finland, Ireland, Italy. Unshocking, you two got to number one in Ireland, New Zealand and Norway. It also reached... 
number one in America and Canada, but not on the mainstream charts. It reached on the alternative and dance charts. And that's where some of the controversy with this song came from, because you 2 were accused by some reviewers and critics of bandwagoning because of the sheer amount of dance-like remixes used on the B-sides. Basically going, you're trying to stay relevant, you're trying to turn yourself into a dance act with B-sides and get some of the club action going. I don't think that's a very fair thing to argue though, because surely like all the great acts of their generations are the ones that mold with the times. Like surely like the brilliance of Bowie was that Bowie always changed his style and he sort of like looked to not what was popular, but actually I mean in case of Bowie he looked ahead to what was popular. You know, he was someone who adapted with the changes of the musical landscape. And I think you two probably did it better than Madonna did, or better than Cher did it. I think that is an unfair criticism against the group, and I'm not even a U2 fan. I'd absolutely agree, because they weren't the only band doing dance remixes at this time. Hello Manic Street Preachers, they had some great remixes done on some of their B-sides. No band worth their salt is gonna go, well, fair fucks, our time in the limelight is over. I'm just going to quietly walk off into the sunset. They will do what they need to stay relevant. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Hello Kiss removing the makeup. Even though they were actually very successful without the makeup, they did just become bland. Mm. I don't begrudge you two for having a, a dance remix or any band for having dance remix on the, the B-sides of a single to be played in clubs and stuff. I actually think it's a really smart play, if anything. I'm not the biggest U2 fan, but they did write some great tracks. Hold Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me, Thrill Me, Elevation. I mean, really, I think a lot of the negativity towards U2 comes from, A, people making fun of Bono, you know, with his whole, like, every time I click my fingers, a child in Africa dies, stop clicking your fingers, then that kind of thing. And also the, the free album on everybody's iPods. It's still in my iTunes. I can't get rid of it. <laughs> I get rid of the bloody thing. Dry as I might, I could not get rid of it. I think there is an element of Bono that is self-aware. And the only reason I say that is, um, was it Julie Taymor across the universe, the Beatles musical, which got a bit of a critical drubbing. I really liked it because it was fun. He was playing this kind of guru type role that was very much based off the idea of Ken Casey, the guy that held the acid test in San Francisco, had the bust going nowhere, all this kind of stuff. There is no way Bono was cast in that role and Bono was not aware that he was kind of taking the piss out of himself a bit. Also did a pretty good job of I Am The Walrus. Would never want him to perform it outside of the musical, but he did a pretty good job of it there. In the other music and TV news, on the 15th of February, The Simpsons is shown for the last time on BBC One, with the episodes Two Cars in Every Garage and Three Eyes on Every Fish. The Simpsons on BBC One experiment has come to an end as it moves across to BBC Two. Now that is pretty much like I was watching it when it was on BBC One, but when it moves to BBC Two, that's when I really, really, really get into The Simpsons and the daily double plays they would do and man just filling up VHS after VHS tape with those. Uh, have we got anything in the magazines to cover before we get into the episodes? We do because it is our last week with this magazine. We get one new magazine to go into for our last episode and so we're going to go to the letters page because the letters page has an article that not only refers to where we are which is at the original end of Games Master but also brings up Digitizer, which of course was written by one time under consultation guest Paul Rose, aka Mr. Biffo. And Games Master Reviewer. And Games Master Reviewer. He doesn't like to, that to be mentioned, but it's there in, well, VHS colour. Anyway, this letter is titled 
had enough yet? Dear Games Master, I'm writing once again. This time the subject is digitizer on teletext. I was looking over it one day to see the hot topic which happened to be Games Master. It turned out to be a selection of letters slagging off the top game show. There were comments like, I hope it doesn't make another series. Dominic Diamond isn't funny. And Dominic Diamond isn't signing up for another series, which actually we kind of knew going by his own interview in the Games Master magazine. But the writer continues, Well, I, like thousands of other people, I'm sure, think Games Master's fantastic and Dom is funny. So digitizers, regular readers who don't like GM can shove their views up their backsides. The only query I have is, is Dom doing a seventh series or not? And that's from Jonathan Clooney in Coloraton, Leicestershire. Apparently, there was a bit of a to-do between Digitizer and Games Master. I also think the, the comments on that Digitizer page are really funny as well, where it's like, oh, I hope it doesn't get a, a second series, or I hope it doesn't get a seventh series. I hope, uh, you know, I, I don't think they're funny. Those are the responses that the Games Master reboot also got, just they were on Twitter instead of Digitizer Teletext. And they were probably written by the same people. That's, that's what I mean. It's just like the more things change, the more they stay the same. People think that like so, oh, social media really made like critical thinking awful. Like social media ruined wrestling. Social media ruined movies. Like, no, it's always been this way. It's just we've had different forms to do it in. Basically, it connects people's basements. That's what the internet does and social media. And I'm using basement as a metaphorical thing because you always have that idea of trolls in the basement. Well, guess what? Now they've got cups and string and they can talk to each other. But Games Master Magazine responds. Hey, Jonathan, everyone's entitled to them. You know, arses. Gahaha, ha ha ha. But it is true there have been a couple of things missing from the latest series. Consultation zone, not enough reviews, you know. Dom is still a dead funny baldy, though. No one questions that. Seventh series, one looks on the cards, but who'll be fronting it is anybody's guess at the moment. Care to suggest someone? Tell us who and why they'd make a damn fine presenter, and we'll print the best suggestions in a couple of issues' time. Well, to keep an eye out for that, then. I like the well, they, they're saying that a seventh series is on the cards, which apparently means they knew more than the Games Master production team, who definitely didn't know that a seventh series was on the cards. They were probably hoping a seventh series is on the card, because at that point, they might have been going, well, shit, it's curtains for us if Games Master stops. I mean, as it was, the magazine went on and outlasted the TV series by a decade or more. Yeah, I was going to say, it was well into the 2000s that magazine was running for. The other bit in that reply that really kind of stuck out to me there was the, oh, there's no consultation zone anymore. It's like, oh, there's not as many reviews anymore. It actually kind of feels like the, you know, longstanding criticisms that those shows have had, which is that, you know, the Dom and Mates era, when it stops, quote unquote, stops being Games Master, when really it just becomes a new breed of Games Master. So it's very interesting to read that those thoughts and feelings on the later series was not just felt then, but also felt in-house. You know, these are people working at Games Master magazine, watching the Games Master show, being like, eh, it's not the show I used to watch back in series two. It, it's, it's not the show that basically gave us our jobs. Yeah, like I would very ex excitedly tune in at half past six on a Tuesday or a Thursday to watch people do great challenges and then there'd be reviews and a consultation zone. Now it is just you get a handful of challenges, a big feature and a couple of reviews and, you know, some news and bits like that. Like the show is different. It's still Games Master. If anything, the challenges now are much more epic than they were back in the day. But Luke, as we start to go out of Series 6, and as we leave an entire era of gaming behind, shall we have one more classic letter for the road? 
Is it about the Jaguar? It's called The Really Wild Show. <laughs> Dear Games Master, I was annoyed and angry to see and read the bad press you've given towards the Atari Jaguar. You must be forgetting that it is the most powerful console currently on the UK market. I seem to remember the excuse you used in order to bitch about the Jag was the lack of software titles for it. And I am pleased to inform you that there were over 50 Jag titles available from Telegames, AMK and others, including titles such as Alien vs Predator, Theme Park, Tempest 2000 and Cannon Fodder, as well as the acclaimed Rayman and Primal Rage, with Worms and Zero Five soon to be arriving. And please don't forget that if it wasn't for Atari, we might not have such advanced consoles today. And that's from Live Jed, What an Underedge, Gloucestershire. I like the fact that all of the games that he listed there were games that were featured in series three and four of Games Master. You know, it's like, oh, it's got good games. It's got Alien vs. Predator, came out on release. It's got Tempest 2000 came out on release i get your tribalism towards this and your like desire that you picked the right console when you haven't so you've just dug yourself into this hole that you have picked the right console while constantly shouting dig up stupid it's a remarkable letter to be reading here in february 1997 but would you like to hear what games master magazine had to say in return because normally especially recently they've been quite balanced on these letters yeah there's been a, a lovely level of billy balance uh with games master magazine responses however I, I get the feeling with this one because this is a passionate jaguar owner in february 1997 who is being very defensive about being a jaguar owner in 1997 they may not be on the kinder side here well i'm willing to be wrong the response from games master magazine begins Sorry, Lai. Sorry for forgetting that Jag's the most powerful console currently on the UK market. We really are humbled by your reminder. Like, look at that handful of games you quote. Cannon Fodder, Theme Park, Primal Rage. No, you're right, you really are. It's not as if the lovely old Amiga, Mega Drive or SNES could handle such titles. And you've got worms to look forward to. It's not like it's the last system to get it, is it? Yes, we can look back at the Jag with fond memories of that initial excitement and those deadly impressive games. Tempest, Doom and the like. But the Jag really isn't at the cutting edge these days, is it? So enough is enough. I mean, they're not wrong. <laughs> I hope that this is the last letter we get on the Jag, and maybe this is the one where they're just like, right, Les, stop writing these letters. It stopped being funny. Oh, I don't know. There's a bit of me that hopes that we'll get another one in Series 7. Like, that will just really, like, you know, wrap things up for us. Good evening, and uh, welcome to another Poptastic Games Master. All the hits that fit to frenzy. Later on in the show, an exclusive live performance from Tom, Indy, Pops, and Gene playing live in the studio. But we kick off today with straight in at number seven, another brand new event for Games Master and the pulsating pants party with Things With Wings. Well, it's not just you two that are in the discotheque, because Dom and the Mermaids are in their own discotheque. Never mind that, sh Luke. Gina here. <laughs> Luke, it's Gene. Gene are going to be on the show today. You all remember Gene, right? They mentioned Gene. Now, amazingly, I knew exactly how to spell it. So that shows I was indeed, on some primal level, aware of Gene, and not just my aunt that used to live in Stroud. I looked up Gene, and went to Spotify, I listened to their stuff. Luke, I don't remember Gene. We'll get to it when we get to it, but I, I think they're on this show because Dom likes them. Like, Dom thinks they're an ace band, and that is why they're on this show. You know what? They are good. 
I will say that they are definitely good. And maybe I did hear them at the time, but I was just a bit more caught up in the manics and the like. And certainly, actually, my musical tastes at that point were going backwards and I was discovering more and more music from the 70s. But listening to them now, I'm like, no, they're a top band. I can understand why Dom was and is excited. However, before we get to that, and whilst we quickly get away from this questionable Top of the Pops tribute, oh, mate, we've got a challenge to kick things off. We certainly do. What are we playing, Games Master? Today... I've opted for something rather different. A three-part challenge on the Nintendo 64 Classic Pilot Wings. Three teammates will each face a different task on the game with a time limit of three minutes, 30 seconds for them to complete the whole challenge. The first must navigate his gyrocopter through 10 rings. The second must score a 25-point bullseye on the cannonball level as quickly as possible while the third must once again straddle his copter and shoot down ten balloons from the night sky. Time is of the essence, so it will be up to each contestant not to let the side down by wasting valuable seconds. Oh, I do love a threesome. Mm, 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 it's pilot wings, it's pilot wings. Mm, mm. I love pilot wings, mate. I was going to say, because we've talked about pilot wing 64, uh, on the show previously when we had it reviewed and I, I was trying to rack my brain to decide like because you you loved pilot wings on the snes we covered that in great detail when it was featured in series two and three of the two did you prefer the snes version or the 64 sequel i preferred the snes version i always did and i'm not always 100 on pilot wing 64 actually in preparation for this episode i went and played it on the Switch Online N64 emulation selection. And I was going through it and I'm like, oh, some of this interface is actually a bit clunky. And then I got into the game and my first thing was like hang glider. And I just went straight in, 95 points out of 100. Yeah, there we go. He still it's got still it. still pilot wings. He still got it. It never left him. Oh, no, I mean, that first challenge is, is like fucking easy, but it was just pleasant. It was just like... Oh, that was nice. That's always the thing with Pilot Wings, isn't it? It's just, it's always just a nice time, a nice game, even though, you know, on this one, you have got a lad being fired out of a cannon and screaming the entire time that it's doing so. It just feels quite a nice little surrounding that you're in. It is why I am shocked we do not have a new Pilot Wings for the Switch era, because we had Pilot Wings, Pilot Wings 64, Pilot Wings Resort on the 3DS. This sort of casual game accessible game maybe some cool local multiplayer stuff where they do a split screen it feels like the sort of thing that switch is you know really good for in a docked mode but it is what it is but i was very excited here we are at the tail end of games master to have pilot wings in some form back as a challenge and not just as a challenge but as quite a big episode encompassing challenge speaking of like the switch and stuff i was surprised there wasn't one for the Wii. like with its motion controls and everything this sort of seemed prime material for for nintendo to get a new version of pilot wings out there pilot wings Wii or whatever pilot wings maybe um but yeah this is a, a heck of a challenge we've got here because this is three different rounds first the gyrocopter then the cannon and then the copters shooting down the balloons but you've got three and a half minutes to do it, and you are doing it as a team. In some ways, it's like a team championship. In some ways it is, and actually something like Pilot Wing 64 and this kind of challenge would have been 
a great team championship thing. When we were talking on the last UCN about how we would do a team championship, this is the sort of thing I would have in mind. Yeah, same here. Like, I, I think this is a really fun challenge. In a way, I, I kind of wish there were two teams that were tackling this. So you have that sort of competitive nature to it. However, I do quite like the camaraderie that you just get of these three tackling this one challenge. Because I didn't realize this at first. They explain it a bit later on. But three and a half minutes isn't per challenge. It's three and a half minutes to do all three of the challenges because Games Master does love a threesome. He does indeed. I agree. I would love to have seen a second team in this where maybe they both did the first part and then they both did the second part. Or... Oh, Luke, two Nintendo 64s. Oh, running simultaneously. Yeah. Yes, with a big relay race system to it. Oh, I like that a lot. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to do it as a one take, essentially. You couldn't cut for news or anything like that or an ad break. But, oh, that would have been nice. Yeah, I'd have been really into that. Now, I often ask people to dress up in various uniforms for my own personal viewing pleasure, and today is no different. Our contestants are technically pilots, but I'm sure they would have done it anyway. Please welcome Jeremy Attridge, Mark Chappell, and Paul Milnes. Nice to see you, Right, Jess, tell us how, um, how far, what's the fastest you've ever flown? Well, the jet does uh, Mach 2.2, but I've been twice the speed of sound in it. And what's that in Skoda terms, miles an hour? It's a bit faster than your average Skoda. It's about uh -huh. uh, 1,400 miles an hour. Okay. And, like, how long is your flight? I mean, like, we have, if we fly abroad to film and we do, like, you know, 12 hours to get Los Angeles, how long do you guys fly? Uh, typically, if we work in day to day, it's going to be about an hour, hour and a half, but uh, I've been up for as long as eight and a half hours. Do you, do you get in-flight movies then, you know, for that long? Uh, no, you get a nice navigator to talk to you, though, <laughs> and they, they can whitter on a bit and uh -huh. tell you some good stories, uh -huh. yeah. Now, chaps, you joined uh, at the same time as Jed did on April Fool's Day. Why, why was that? Um, I'm not sure if that's the Air Force playing a joke on us or us playing a joke on them, but that's the way it worked out. Yeah. Now, you, you, you do a lot of instructing. Is that kind of like, like a school? Are you like the teacher then, and did they like take the mickey out of you, the pupils? Uh, we have a, a good working relationship. It's like being out of school. Bit of a laugh. Uh -huh. That's good. That's good. And uh, finally, Millsy, you're all in different squadrons, but the same base. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. What's it going to be like going back to base if you don't do this challenge? Um, if you think of nightmares, we mess up at any stage on this game today, then the banter will be horrendous when we get back. And they don't muck about with banter? Oh, no, no, no. On uh, military bases, do they? Quite harsh, I should think. Okay. And we have got some pretty special guests with us this week because these aren't just punters off the streets. These aren't just arcade nerds that have been picked out of the Trocadero. No, these are flight people. These are proper pilots and stuff. We've got Jez, we've got Chaps, and we've got Millsy. Proper little pilot name that they've been given. Not their real names, of course. It's Jeremy, Mark, and Paul are their real names. And they are there in uniform. And Dom does like people dressing up in uniform for his personal pleasure. So today is no exception. And the first question Don wants to go for is the big one when it comes to fighter pilots, which is how fast have they travelled, like in scooter terms? Mach 2.2 doesn't cut things, but 1,400 miles per hour? That's, that, that's something that Dom can relate to. Particularly because he then goes to the 1997 joke of choice, it's faster than your average Skoda. Always, always the punchline. If you're talking about cars and you want to name a crap car that everyone's going to know is crap, you just say the word Skoda to the point where Skoda, in years to come after this, would have to rebrand themselves to basically be like, no, we're good now. I know people that own Skodas now that make Skoda jokes. They've just kind of owned it and they've gone like, yeah, I've got a Skoda. It's great on a hill start, downhill that is, stuff like that. 
they also talk as well about like what would happen if they lose this challenge you know what will the banter be if they get back to base tomorrow to find out that they haven't won they don't have a games master golden joystick and they'll be like oh it'll be horrendous when we get back it's like i would probably wager that none of them will ask where you were oh no 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 i reckon it would be known they would have had to have gotten leave from the base and because by appearing on this weird little show on channel four they are still representing the royal air force there is still a level of dignity on the line so yeah if they'd biffed this and spoilers they get fucking close to biffing it but if they'd biffed this oh mate it would have been a proper hazing. I I don't think it would have been that bad. I think because like it's a silly little game. Had it been, you know, doing a proper flight sim, like if it been like EF two thousand or something, then maybe perhaps. But this is just you know you're shooting a man out of a cannon at a target. I I don't think it's quite the serious thing to take. I don't know. I know how seriously the military of of all branches can take things. So I was just thinking. I suppose it also depends if there are any real dickheads back at the base. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, there's going to be any dickheads there. They're going to do that, yeah. But you don't tug on Superman's cape and you do not muck around with banter. So they're really going to have to knuckle down in order to get this one done. They are indeed. And while we give them time to adjust their cockpit, it's time to find out what's going on in today's news. This Easter sees the release of the console version of the arcade classic Manx TT. Featuring two tracks and an initial choice of eight bikes, the game comes with a host of options including mirror mode, bonus bikes, two-player split screen, and apparently even a racing sheep cheat that was in the arcade. It's a rare cause for Satharonis to celebrate. I think one of the nice things about the introduction of the news into Games Master is that like, there's a really consistent thing is that we kind of get lovely little follow-on stories. So like, you know, Manx TT, we had at the end of Series 5, I think it was, or it might even been the end of Series 4, as, you know, one of the big arcade games that's going to be coming out this year. And here we are, you know, into February of 1997, and we're now talking about the console release of this game. So it's quite nice to be able to track literally the evolution of these games through the lens of Games Master. And see how quickly that we got here from Virtua Racing up to Daytona USA, Sega Rally Scud Racing, Manx TT, this evolution in arcade gaming. And this is even still a Model 2. We've already seen the Model 3 games on display. And also, this is quite nice because while obviously a lot of these games are developed in Japan and a lot of them are based in America, this one's based just over there. Yeah, it's quite nice, really, isn't it? And like, I actually felt a bit sad at the end of this news item as well, where Dom's like, it's a rare cause for Saturn owners to celebrate. Everyone at this point knows that you backed the wrong horse if you did buy yourself a Sega Saturn when it came out. But it, it's still quite rough to hear. And it's interesting when you read into the development of the Saturn version, because Sega trusted the port of this to a third party, an external developer who'd never ported an arcade game, particularly one of their arcade games before, thankfully turned out to be a massive success and was very well received. But I'm trying to think, was that move by Sega just a a sign that Sega were already going, we're we're not going to spend our resources on this. We'll just throw money at someone else to take care of it. Particularly when the the way that Dom kind of phrases this, you know, it's a rare cause for Saturn to celebrate. We had that news item in the magazine that WH Smiths will not be stocking Saturn games anymore. The Saturn is very much on the downward slope. And yet here we've got this game that feels so limited 
it's only got two tracks and eight bikes you could make that argument i was like well you know if a game like ridge racer say on the playstation when that came out it was very early in the playstation life cycle and we're just starting to get through you know into the the next phase of the the life cycle of that console we're here what feels like at the end of the saturn's life cycle and we're still getting games coming out they're just like yeah there's two tracks with a two-player mode it just feels like yeah it is a rare cause to celebrate because it's a good game but even then it's a very small game it's not one of those games that's had a massive expansion of functionality like a lot of the additional features are things you would just expect like practice races i mean the notable two-player split screen mode compatibility with the saturn analog controller that's pretty cool but it's certainly not like a feature boosted port i mean to go to the other side of things when we talked about uh, soul blade yeah i absolutely get a whole new version of that game appears in there the big quest mode thing and like you know oh cool we got mirror mode here mirror mode just sort of feels like a standard thing you would add in thankfully obviously the racing sheep is still there so that's that's nice to see yeah it's, it just feels a bit limited a bit small a bit small scale not a lot of shelf life uh, I would imagine, for, for Manx TT on the Saturn. Although, speaking of shelf life, the next title we're looking at, oh boy, howdy, it's one of the daddies of the 3D shoot-em-up era. It's unreal. Since we're getting near the end of the series, we thought we'd give you an exclusive peek at the PC game everyone will be talking about later in the year, Unreal. Making full use of the new MMX chip, Unreal sports the kind of graphics that make Quake look like it's running on the Game Boy. I would say, yeah, there's there's four pillars, right, of the, the PC 3D shooter. It's Doom, Quake, Duke Nukem, and Unreal. Duke Nukem, I think, is the one that's sort of fallen by the wayside. Doom still lives to this day. Quake has had a bit of a resurgence. Unreal essentially has become the engine to use for, for anything. Unreal, particularly Unreal Tournament, I got massively, massively into, hugely into Unreal Tournament. What a game it was. Oh, I love me a bit of Unreal Tournament. It's such a good game. I remember back in one of my former jobs when we were rolling out masses of new computers across the summer, like when you had a room full of 30 fairly potent computers and you knew that if you could get ahead of the work schedule, you could take a bit of a longer lunch break. You could run unreal tournament on a lan and just 20 of you just all piled into this room playing different lan games and and just like doing team-based games capture the flag capture the flag and all that oh, yeah so so good it's lovely to see unreal here as well you know they're talking about like this is we're coming to the end of this series but this is the fps that everyone is going to be talking about it's so impressive it makes quake look like it's running on a game boy that's notable for two things. A, I think the Quake looks dead nice. Also, B, we were talking about how great it looked not that long ago earlier in this series. But also C, a shout out to the Game Boy here in Series 6 of this show. Still knocking around and getting more of a cultural relevance in this show than the Jaguar. <laughs> or the Game Gear. 
But we are still over a year away from Unreal being released at this point, May 1998 when it comes out for Windows. And then over the next four years, it would sell in excess of 1.5 million copies. It's a tasty little game, is Unreal. Real big fan of it. I'd actually really like to go back and replay it. I'd love to replay Unreal Tournament for that matter. Lovely to see it here as well. But Luke, guess what? What's that? Oh, please tell, please tell me it's a Jaguar port. Please tell me it's a Jaguar port. No, better than a Jaguar port. A port for the Nintendo 64 DD. Oh, it's, yes, there's a, a rarity to find. Basically, they canned it because while it would be possible, the storage space of the cartridge and the 64 DD would necessitate heavy compromises to the details of monsters and the number of textures. But Luke, guess what? Guess what? What's that? There was a Dreamcast port planned as well. Uh-huh. What happened with that one? Um, It was cancelled when GT Interactive went up the shutter. A real tournament on the Dreamcast, though, isn't it? Or am I thinking of Quake 3 Arena? Well, both. Actually, I think. But no, Unreal Tournament did get there. Basically, GT Interactive had fiscal problems. They would end up being purchased by Infograms before the turn of the millennia. And then Unreal Tournament would make its way to the Dreamcast in 2001, just in time for the Dreamcast itself to go tits up. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not when you want to be releasing games on the uh, on the old Dreamcast. I didn't get my Dreamcast until 2001, and I've still got that same Dreamcast now. It's sat over there. I literally just Googled Unreal Tournament guns and just reminded myself of all the cool weapons in that game. One last thing, while we are still a year away from Unreal Tournament, and I'm sure we'll have cause to talk about it again, this is a game that's development cycle straddled the pre and post 3d accelerator world so it started with a software engine then as time went on and it got closer and closer to release the compatibility for hardware 3d cards came in 3dfx microsoft direct 3d basically they were doing their best to keep up with the technology as it was coming out. Lastly, I do apologise for the appalling quality of this footage, but it's the only material we could get our hands on of the new Street Fighter 3D arcade game. It's Street Fighter, yes, but this time Joy of Joys is in 3D. Some new characters are in evidence, but it still looks, smells and tastes like the Street Fighter we all know and love. It should be in the arcades later on this year. And our last news item here, which we had featured in Games Master Magazine not that long ago, Street Fighter EX. Now, the thing I really like about this news item is how apologetic Dominic Diamond is because the footage that they've got is really bad but it's the best they could get their hands on. Yeah I mean we talked about Street Fighter EX when we covered it in the magazine a few weeks back but it's just a game I did not get into with the exception of EX Plus Alpha. EX Plus Alpha I think we get as a challenge in the next series and I played quite a bit of EX Plus Alpha but none of the straight EX games. No, I mean, I played the PlayStation port. That was that was where I was at on this. Don't think I ever really saw it in the arcade. No, I don't. I never saw it in the arcade. I will say, well, yeah, it is kind of wonky bootleg footage. It's kind of cool, like the satin in someone's living room. That's it. That's what I like. That's what it really reminded me of, was like that first like Ridge Racer stuff with the lad who had the satin. Although one interesting thing to note is that this wasn't Capcom's first 3D fighter. We've talked about Star Gladiator before, and a lot of people possibly including us, may have actually said, oh, well, Star Gladiator was a dry run for Street Fighter EX. It was not. It was a different development line. It's completely different technically. And the knowledge that was used to make Street Fighter EX was completely different. Top news action there. Now, Millsy, Jez and Chaps uh, aren't actually the Arsenal midfield, although they send it out there. They're actually all fighter pilots and they're about to do our event on pilot wings on the Ultra 64. 
Kurt Ewing has been my co-pilot for this particular challenge, which is why I've put my arm like that in a Me kind too. of pilot, co-pilot manner. Now, um, Kurt, you are from Viz. Yes, I am from Viz, but today I'd actually prefer to be known uh, by my codename, which is Purple Monkey. Okay, that's uh, Kurt's call sign today, and I'm going to be Choke Chicken. So, Kirk, have you got any tips for the guys in on this first part of the challenge? First part of the challenge is the river run, where you're flying your gyrocopter. Basically, hit all the rings, don't miss a ring. And if you have a real problem, try and hit the white rings, because that's going to give you an extra five seconds, and mean you can maybe loop back around and, and do one if you miss it. Or carry on to the other parts of the challenge. Right, so we get back to the challenge. We've got Kirk in the booth, but really, Dominic Diamond introduces us back here, saying we're playing pilot wings on the Ultra 64. Dominic Diamond, it has been quite some time since it has not been called the Ultra 64, but old habits die hard, I guess. Oh no, I'm there for it. I'm like, never let it die, Dom. Do not let that name pass quietly into the night. Once again, if this was a slicker production, they'd have done a retake on that because they'd have said, Dom, you said the wrong thing. But that's the beauty of Games Master. It's just, it's a one-take wonder show. We do more editing than Games Master did. Kirk is Dom's co-pilot, and that's why they're both stood there like half a teapot. Kirk's call sign is Purple Monkey, and Dom is Choked Chicken. I like the fact that the pilots play into that and call him Choked Chicken uh, at the end of this. I really, really made me laugh, made me really warm to them. I love the fact that they were even listening that much. They were on board for this, and we've got a very tricky one to start us off with here, with the gyrocopter. We've got Millsy up first. It's three and a half minutes to do all the stages. And Dom reckons you need to do this in about a minute and a half to give everyone else enough time to get their bits and bobs done. He's doing pretty well for this. He tries to go for a couple of the time extending ones, but doesn't quite get them, mostly because the blue ones are easier to get. The regular hoops are just probably easier to get. And he then reaches the minute and a half mark. And Dom's like, he should have done this quicker. So he gets the ninth one and he goes for the bonus ring and he gets that and then just crashes spectacularly into a cliff. It is a quite remarkable little finish that he has here. He does get his bit done, but he has not left a huge amount of time for his compatriots. Regarding crashing into the side of a cliff, it's fine. Landing was never part of this challenge. It was not. That time, it's not disastrous but it's not brilliant. You know, Dom reckons he had to do that in a minute and a half, which would have meant that the challenge would have finished with two minutes left on the clock. There's 1.52 left on the clock, so it's not like the worst, but, you know, it's really sort of the, the, some of the time extension stuff that he got. It's just, it's not the most ideal scenario for them to be in, particularly with Jez doing the, the cannonball next, because that bonus thing, I think, really helps them in this. But like it's again, it's still not the position they wanted to be in because the cannonball, I mean, it's timely to move the thing up, to get your trajectory right, to get your power and everything right. So hopefully, Jez will do this really well. Okay, this is the cannon. He can uh, move the, the cannon up and down, left and right to try and get the trajectory. The power indicator on the left-hand side of the screen, that's low. And it's going to shoot right up to high there. Wonderful. He's fired it. Let's see where it's going. This looks good. that Jez has got the big match temperament there. That is incredible, Leon, which takes the time up to 1 minute 42 seconds Whoa. for Jez. Jez, make way for chaps. Jez did it really well. I mean, <laughs> it, as tense as it may have been of going, oh, they're only just under the recommended time limit. And Jez is just like, fair enough. I've done this before. 
boom, straight into the bullseye, max points, nails it first time. It's absolutely amazing. And so suddenly we've got one minute 42 left on the clock. It's absolutely fine, mostly. Yeah, we're, we're mostly back on track here. It really did feel like if Jez had messed up one shot, then they really would have been on the back foot going into the final one. But he did so well there. You know, Kirk's like, he should do this in about 40 seconds. Took him in te- took him 10 seconds to do this. And like you're going then into the third part of this challenge being like, oh, well, now the game is on. Because if you'd imagine in that simultaneous play you were talking about earlier, if one of them had finished the gyrocopter and were on the cannonball while the other team are still on the gyrocopter, and then they get this shot, and then both of them are going into the final stage at the same time, it would have been a real, real tense drama. But this actually is incredibly tense going into to Chaps round here. One minute 42 left on the clock at this point when you include the bonuses. They'd have to really balls this up for this to be super tight. I mean, what are the chances they're going to really cock this up? Dom thinks you can do this in one minute 20. So he's got 22 extra seconds on top of what Dom's recommended time is. But even Dom says, you know, one minute 20 would be cutting it fine. So he has got to maximize his minutes uh, for using uh, some wrestling parlance there. Because he's got to get 10 balloons here in order to complete the challenge. And he gets five of those with one minute left on the clock. He's halfway there. And he's got a full minute to do this. But he is very slow at banking. So when he does his big swoops and he does his big misses, it takes him a long time to turn his ass around. So he gets two more, but has only got 40 seconds left on the clock and then has to bank again, nearly going into the cliffside. And he finds loads of balloons. Honestly, hundreds upon hundreds of these balloons that he could fire at. And he somehow misses a lot of them. In fact, you could say he misses almost all of them. Put this way, I hope he's not a gunner. Because <laughs> we're now 23 seconds left on the clock. He gets one. Very, very lucky. We are down to 20 seconds left. And he fires off one final shot, completes the challenge with 15 seconds remaining on the clock. Boy, howdy. Jez do completing absolutely nailing that cannonball challenge and Millsy getting that 10 second extension really does save the challenge for them somewhat. Excellent work, guys. Let's uh, let's let's take the three parts of your challenge uh, in order there. Millsy, you started off, you finished uh, two seconds under the split time, gained the team two seconds. Talk us through it. Yeah, unfortunately, it wasn't the fastest run in the world, so I had to take my chances on the bonus points, and uh, well, it worked out in the end, thank God. It did, again, just at two seconds, and then we went on to Jez with the bullseye. What can I say? First time, you, you gained a further 16 seconds for the team there. Were you nervous at all? I don't think I've ever seen so much pressure, actually, choking in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so how does that compare to flying a tornado, then? Was it, was it, was it worse? Uh, about the same, really. About the same kind of pressure and uh, tenseness. Uh-huh. Now, chaps, on the face of it, yes, you did well, you did the challenge, but the boys have bought you 18 seconds of time. You did it with 15 seconds left, so technically, if they hadn't done that, you wouldn't have done it. What I'm saying is you were rubbish. Uh, what I'm saying, Donning, is team game, and of course, um, <laughs> as a team, we like to play to the crowd, so I thought two seconds, three seconds, just keep it tense towards the end. You'd never know he was an instructor, no. cool. would you? Do you know what I mean? That's, that, that's good. Well, listen. We get to the post-match, and Millsy says, not the fastest run in the world, so I had to take my chance on the bonus points, 
Jazz, first time bullseye gain, 16 seconds. Can't remember being under so much pressure and calls Dom by his call sign, which really cracks Dom up in a, oh shit, they were listening kind of way. Yeah, he was not expecting him to use the call sign. I thought it was a really, really nice touch. This is where Dom highlights that, chaps, you, you did do well. However, your teammates here got you 18 extra seconds and you did this with 15 left on the clock. So really they completed this for you but chaps has got the perfect response that was like well it's a team game and you play as a team and you keep it tense until the end and we won as a team and really he's not wrong he did complete the challenge dom's not buying it (laughs) yeah that's the sort of bullshit excuse i would use if i'd let the side down yeah as a proper team championship i'm not being the weak link of this team it was a team effort that we won today there is no i in team particularly when I've cocked it. He thanks them for coming. It's always nice to work with men in uniform. For now, they need to get their hands on their joystick. One joystick between the three of them. I guess there is no I in team. I was going to say, this is the cheapness that we saw a couple of weeks ago. A team of three only get one golden joystick between them. Come on, guys. They're not that expensive to throw out there. You were literally throwing them in one of the episodes. You don't care about them that much. I mean, I suppose, in balance, if they'd been super good at the challenge, like if all three of them had been exemplary, pride of the RAF, maybe they'd have got one each. But as it is, it's like, guys, Nat's ass on that one. You get one. <laughs> or if they'd been big gamers, as opposed to we called up an airbase and said, hey, which of your guys are pretty good on the simulators? Okay, coming up in the second part of the show, we have one of my favourite bands of all time. Obviously, I'm very excited. We're almost in a pant-changing situation. To spare my blushes, you can look at these adverts. Chocolate? No. Maltesers won't fill you up. They're a honeycomb centre of tiny bubbles captured in delicious chocolate. Got any left? Fight you for it. These sad fruits saw the light when Creamy Salt made them into a creamy custody fruitini. Cherry was aboard pineapple oh, until real fruit juice changed him into a juicy fruitini. Oh, let me hear you say, yeah! And Derek was an innocent peach, ain't that the truth, until real juice jelly made him into a jelly fruitini. Del Monte fruitini, it's fruititious. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The cast of A Fish Called Wanda. In a new comedy that isn't a sequel, it's an equal. Yes, I like him breast of Earth, best of, <clears throat> of all the, the small memories. Mammals. Keep making boobs. Kevin Klein, John Cleese, Jamie Lee Curtis, and Michael Palin. Stunning. Fierce creatures. Are you ready to party? Oh, we're game. The fact that we've already got a game plan. Well, I could just go as a pirate. I'm really turned on. But they want to change my hair. Who'd be on your guest list? My wife asked me that very same question last night at dinner. Farrah Fawcett, Andy Carter, Betty Rubble. <laughs> Get a grip on reality. He might have taught you well, but Luke, I am your father. Michael J. Fox keeps his feet on the ground in Spin City tonight at 9.30. Comedy still hottest on four. Welcome back. As I said before the break, I'm very excited about tonight's guest. I had to change my pants. The pants have changed and I feel like a new man. So to, to peel back the curtain somewhat, um, we're filming this the day after I've just had a couple of days off work being very unwell. Yesterday, having been in bed for you know almost 48 hours, I just said to my wife, I was like, I need to get up, I need to have a shower and I need to put on some clean pyjamas. And I got up, I had my shower and I, those clean pyjamas made me feel like a new man. So I really, really feel what Dom is saying here, that changing those pants made him feel like a new man. So I get that, particularly in the summer months, if you've been out, if you've been working hard or like if I'm working a show and it's in a hot venue, or I know I'm going to be doing a lot of running backwards and forwards, or even like going, peeling back the curtain again, UCP Live. I had one change of clothes that I got everything ready and did all the setup. And then I got changed into my show clothes. And the thing is, I could have, because I was wearing a geeky t-shirt anyway, I could have just shrugged on the leather jacket, put on the bandana and I'd have been good to go. But no, I changed my socks. I changed my pants. I put the same jeans back on, but I changed my shirt. And it was a case of, okay, I'm out of prep mode. And now I am in show mode. And yeah, maybe it's the cooling fabric. Maybe it's just the fact it's dry. But I am with you. I am with Dom. There is something nice about a clean pair of pants. So we are both changed in the pants type department. Uh, let's have a celebrity challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? It's time to get a bit racy now, as this next challenge will be played on touring cars, the latest arcade racing game from Sega. Players have four laps to decide which of them is king of the road. And uh, as usual, We'll be moving between our two contestants' point of view to keep abreast of the action. 
Let's burn rubber. So this is cool because we had this as a news item back in episode five. And again, it's that what I kind of mean by that, you know, the journey that the series kind of takes you on when you have news items and then challenges. Actually, in a similar way to the news item we had with Barbie fashion designer, then the feature of it. Here we had a news item on Sega Touring Car and then we get it as an actual challenge many, many episodes later. This is a really cool one because it's a, the big arcade machine. You're in the big car things and they're going to be flicking between the two screens as well to keep you up with the action. It is a visually striking and kind of stunning challenge. I'm a big, big fan of these massive arcade challenges that we get. This is a lovely, lovely looking game. It again is a Model 2. This is the second Model 2 base game we've talked about. And it's so crazy how different AM divisions of Sega are working on completely different hardware platforms. And yet here we are. It was a handpicked team that made this game. And we're going to talk about the teams a bit later on Dom's little jolly and feature. But a 15 person team handpicked by AM3 and just coming together to make this and the amount of research. I love it when you see and hear about the research that goes into these games where they're just like, well, we're making a racing game. We should probably go and race these cars. We should spend time on the track. We should smell the petrol. Not literally smell the petrol. Huffing petrol is bad for you kids. Don't do drugs. They basically wanted to create the most fun slash realistic experience possible. And they did that by immersing themselves in the world they were basing it on. And we see this game here and it looks and runs great. I'm a big fan of the Sega sit-down races in general. And while, you know, the people playing this may not be as fond of this one as of other Sega racing games, you give me any of them and I'll be a happy lad. I am a big fan of this and actually I think it's really nice that we get this challenge that's paired with the feature that comes afterwards because yeah we literally go into what you were just talking about there seeing the behind the scenes of them going to these tracks to take in the the atmosphere and make sure that this is real in fact actually when the game came out one critic said and I think this perhaps is a bit of a detriment to it it is painstakingly real to the almost the point that it's it's hard to play because you need to actually be good at rally driving in order to be really good at this game because it feels so authentic that's it's both a positive and a negative in a way and i think it comes across in this challenge because it's quite scrappy this challenge but that also makes it very very fun but we have four laps to work out which of the players are kings of the road and luke they're here they're finally here we've been building to it all episode it's Gene. Now, Martin, I, I want to start with you, and I want to talk about objects thrown onto stage uh -huh. while you're performing. Uh, what are some of the things you've had hurled? Well, the, the, the first was a pair of Y-fronts with uh, some sort of cryptic message uh, crayoned on them. Um, I've had... A large pant or a small it was pant? A small, it was a small pant, actually, but still Y. <laughs> uh, Steve, I presume it's a singer that gets the most stuff thrown at him. Do you ever get stuff thrown? Um, occasionally, but I've got my guitar to hide behind, right, you can so I can always use it sort of like a cricket them. bat. Do you ever feel annoyed that you've been kind of linked, you know, you are part of the great Britpop indie fraternity, and you've never been down as a boys band? You've never been bracketed with Take That and it's 17, <laughs> sadly. I know, it's, it's most annoying because I've got the thighs. Yes, I mean, you're yeah. both very good looking men, if you don't mind me saying. Oh, so thank you very much. Sweet, so you this me is, blush. This is the 90s. Yeah. And finally, our, um, our oasis proof that Darwin's theory of evolution is untrue. <laughs> I, 
<laughs> refuse to come in. <laughs> Damn, you can never get them slagging each other off unless it's in the pages of the enemy or the melody maker. And they don't play that musical number that Don promised us earlier. I was genuinely pissed off. I was just like, mate, you know, you made jokes about not letting other bands do musical numbers. You could have actually had them at least, you know, do a bit of a lip sync. Maybe go uh, addicted to love route and have the Murs fill in as the rest of the band. Yeah, that'd have been really fun because you know Dom here takes a you know he takes this little jab at take that. Yet you read the book and he just that's all he can ever talk about is that they had take that in series two. And it was like the biggest band they could ever get, and he hates that challenge because there's not enough time spent on actually talking to take that. But he is clearly a huge fan of Gene. Martin and Steven here from the band. I, like you, we talked about this earlier, do not remember Gene whatsoever. I went and listened to some tracks after watching this and I don't recall them at all. They clearly just flew under my radar. They are good though. Very, very good. You know, very much of that, that era, that Britpop indie era. I just don't recall them whatsoever. But, you know, hey, fair play to them. They did all right for themselves. Yeah, I mean, certainly did better than they would have under their original name because they were based out of a band called The Go Hole. Uh, I think in the 90s, you probably could have got away with that. Named after a fictional beat club in the novel Go, they were later renamed Spin with an exclamation mark instead of an I, and then it went on to be Gene. Because they're still kind of in their infancy at the moment in terms of like their popularity like they sort of broke through in in 94 and then started to get some you know some success this that and the other at the sort of the time we find them here we're just like you know it's it's drawn to the deep end is is sort of the album that they're here to promote at the time that actually recorded this they would have only had the one album uh, which was olympian in 95 because at the time they would have been filming this they might have had Fighting Fit out. Depends exactly where, or they'd be preparing to release Fighting Fit, which charted made it into the top 40. Then by the time this aired, we would have had We Could Be Kings, which got as high as number 18. And then you had the LP those were brought from, which was drawn to the deep end, which was released in 1997 itself. That's the one that I actually listened to some cuts from in preparation for this. That's where I went to as well. Yeah, We Could Be Kings, I really like as a track. And they'll be around for a few more years as well. Like they don't split until the early 2000s. So they, they're with us for a little bit while. If you are if you were a Gene fan, you still have a few years left of these and a, a couple of albums as well. So fair play to them. It's quite funny on the episode because Dom is clearly like, he thinks they're the biggest band that they could possibly get on this show. But there's this real like stench of, yeah, I don't think many people are kind of aware of this band. It's not like you got Blur on the show or even the Manics. No, although I'm just looking down the stuff they did around the time this was released, they performed at the Royal Albert Hall with a full orchestra. That's cool. It was actually broadcast on Radio 1, so that means there should be some decent bootlegs of this available, if not some official releases floating around online. I hadn't seen it when I looked before, but I love a band with an orchestra. I'm I'm a big fan of that. And also something I know I do have access to will have been Rossiter's appearance on Nevermind the Buzzcocks. Hey. Yeah, he appeared in late 1997, where he caused some questions to be asked about his sexuality, much to Rossiter's bemusement. Basically, Rossiter was like, well, I've never hidden the fact that I sleep on both sides. Yeah, I'm bisexual. It doesn't really matter. 
But of course, for that to be on BBC television in 1997, bisexuals, they don't exist. Yeah, I mean, particularly on that style of comedy quiz show as well, in the late 90s, it would have been like a, oh, there's some easy jokes to be made here. There's, oh, you're a bit different, aren't you? Very, like, it's amazing, really, because for Ruster, like, it is just, it's a natural thing. That's just who he is. But in the late 90s, you know, the, the joke was like, oh, you're greedy, are you? Or, you know, something along those lines. I love the fact that to him it's nothing, but, you know, to the rest of the Buzzcocks team, it was like this really big thing you could make something out of. One other reason he hit the headlines, and I just, I love this, so I'm going to include it in. He had a scuffle with comedian Paul Kay, which culminated with him headbutting Kay in a nightclub. And I was just like, man, how quickly do things need to escalate where you go for the Glasgow kiss? And technically, he retired. He was due to retire in 2020 to leave the music industry, but then something happened that caused a lot of events to be cancelled. And eventually, 20th of November at the O2 in Kentish Town, that was when he was done. Apart from briefly in 2022, when he came out of retirement for a Ukraine refugees fundraiser, which is a very, very good reason to come out of a musical retirement. They are very good on this show as well. Very, very good in the interview because they are playing up to Dom's style of comedy. You know, Dom's talking about how, like, oh, have you ever had underwear thrown at you on the stage? And he's like, oh, no, it's just wife runs thrown at me with cryptic messages in them. And, you know, Steve's like, oh, I just hide behind the guitar. And I really enjoyed Dom trying to get them to slag off Oasis and they won't bite for it whatsoever. And Dom's like, oh, they'll only do that sort of thing for NME. They're also like, now, if we do it here, the Gallaghers definitely know what we look like. We're not risking that. That is a commonality with Don, where when he gets someone that's from an industry where there is the opportunity for, you know, a bit of a kerfuffle, a bit of tension, a bit of interplay, he'll go for it. And giving me lift and support for this one is Mr. Kirk Ewing from Viz. Okay, Kirk, have you got any tips from Martin and Steve on a touring car? Okay, on this smashing Sega game of touring cars, the cars are quite literally sliding all over the place. Now, the best thing they can do is follow this sort of oily slick. It's a line, a black line that runs around the track. And if they follow that, that's going to give them the best line for going into the bends. That'll make the whole thing go a bit faster for them. Okay, thank you, Kirk. Just a word of caution for you, the viewer. You will actually see two screens sliding uh, back and forward. This does not mean anything is up the duff with your telly. This is so we can uh, quite literally flick from one driver to the other. So don't panic if that happens, okay? Uh, We've got Kirk in the booth once again, and he suggests that if you follow the oil slick that goes around the track, that gives you the best line. That is some genuinely great advice for this game, is that it almost gives you a line to take in order to get around the track The to take the corners the best way. And I love that Dom has to also explain to the audience that they're switching screens. There's nothing wrong with your television sets. We are doing this so that we can show you both sides of the action. A very quaint bit of old telly. Nowadays, they wouldn't even necessarily split. It would be done picture in picture. In fact, I am kind of surprised they didn't do that then. Technologically, it would have been possible, but it might have actually confused people even more. I think with a game this fast as well, and this slidey, it might actually be quite jarring to watch, to have like two picture in picture. Like, you're right. Like it, I, I think it might just be a bit too overbearing. Because like Steve is all over the place with his sliding trying to get it again that comes back to that painstakingly real aspect of the game it's kind of hard to give a blow-by-blow account of this challenge i'd recommend you could go and watch it because it's proper back and forth it's martin's in the lead steve overtakes 
then Martin overtakes him, Steve overtakes him. And it really is a case of back and forth action, one of them getting in front of the other, using the walls as barriers to like squeeze them out. And like it's it's really good to the point where there's loads of other racers in this race. There's loads of other cars. And Dom makes the point, it's like, we don't give a chuff about those. And it feels like we don't give a chuff about them either. We are only focused on these two and the great little race that these two are having. I thought this was a, a really, really fun, fun challenge. It's scrappy, but it's two guys having a laugh. They're competing. They're taking it seriously in that regard. I think if it was like a super perfect set of laps, they would have had to have both been very equally perfect for it to have had anywhere as near as much tension as it did here. Like it would have basically have to have been exchanging one and two for the entire race as opposed to this, which is they're exchanging like six and two or seven and one or so. You know, it, it, it's very um elastic. Congratulations, Martin. Thank you very much. Congratulations, Steve. So it goes. Now, uh, Martin, that was uh, quite an aggressive race from you uh, at, at times. What, what were some of the tactics that you were employing there? Well, it was simply to uh, convince the world that I'm not the uh, work-shy fop that they think I am. <laughs> <laughs> how, does that, how does that compare to other driving games then that you've played? Um, well, I'm a Daytona addict. Uh-huh. I've been known to sort of go up to uh, Oxford Street and pile in pound coin after pound coin. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's good. It is good. Um, although there could be a little, a little more feel in the steering wheel, uh-huh. I think. But it's, it's, um, it's a fine game. Steve, you could have done it with a little bit more feel somewhere <laughs> along there. Where, where did it go wrong for you? It was only three seconds in it at the end. Uh, it's just the car was too sensitive for me. I just didn't have the control necessary. But why didn't you talk to it, try and understand its problems then? He's used to track next time. <laughs> and that's kind of what they talk about in this, this post-match. They kind of prefer Daytona. That was all the vibe that I got. was like, I kind of wish we were here to play Daytona. But they talk about how like you want to feel more from the wheel like it's a fun game but i kind of want to have a bit more grip to it you know even steve is saying like the car's too sensitive it's actually not the most glowing endorsements of the game from two celebrities who've just played it they literally almost come off being like yeah i wish it was a different game to be honest but they get their chance to plug the album drawn to the deep end again and dom thoroughly recommends investing in the album which he probably wouldn't have been able to hear in its entirety at that point. But, you know, I mean, Dominic's a trustworthy guy. I, I'd take his recommendation. He probably is like, the first album's dead good, so I'd imagine this one as well. Because, yeah, they, this would have been recorded in about July of 1996, knowing that it's going to air in February of 1997. So we've kind of got no idea where the lads actually are in the recording of this album. It could be miles off for all we know. They do a, a good job here of just saying, Go and buy the new album, please. Yeah. Sega's arcade machine division have produced the greatest arcade games in the history of the world, bar none. This is their base in Tokyo. It's so exclusive and so secretive that only three Western journalists have ever been in this building, and none of them have returned. Now, we said in a previous episode that we were done with Dom's journey across Japan, and that's because I'd confused this segment with the other segment that he did when he was in the game testers office or either the university office where you're kind of learning how to make games and stuff i confused that one with this one and thinking they were both one and the same forgetting that we get this quite extensive feature here of dom going to the am departments of sega it's kind of amazing because these are like the cutting edge arcade guys at the moment we have spent a lot of time in series 5 of ucp talking about am2 model 3 
this is where this magic is happening. Model 3 and, and Model 2 and all this sort of stuff, I feel has been a huge discussion, a big sort of like dominating presence across this series. So it's quite nice for us right at the end of the run to get a good deep dive into it, meet the people behind it, you know, Mr. Yamasa. Mr. Yamasa, by the way, who was an assistant director of AM3 at the age of 25. Lad is doing very, very well for himself. And it is, we then get to see them doing like touring cars and the making of touring cars. It is a really, really fine little feature. Even if for some reason Dom is doing kind of a Mission Impossible, I guess it's because it's like a case of, oh, they don't normally let journalists in here, so I'm going to tit about and make sure they never let a journalist in again. Well, I, I guess for Dom, it's like, well, we can't just do a straight-laced thing of me going in there. What could we do? Uh, Mission Impossible, I guess? We'll parody that for a bit, maybe. That will be absolutely fine. It won't look weird in the edit, I'm sure. But, I mean, there's the questions there. What makes Sega the best in the world? And he says, via a very Eurotrash translator voice. That's what I got from this. A very, very Eurotrash. This, this, this feels very inspired by the works of Eurotrash. What is it that makes the Sega arcade division and, and the teams the best and most respected in the whole world? At Sega, we're all massive games fans, and over the years we've developed a unique set of programming skills. Also, our development time is not limited, so we can spend as long as we like ensuring that every game is absolutely perfect. They're all massive gaming fans. Over the years they've built up a specialist set of programming skills as a result. Because of the field they work in, their time is less limited so they can spend as much time as possible ensuring every game is perfect. Although, I'm sure there's a bean counter somewhere that is looking at the bottom line and going, tick-tock, lads. Yeah, I, I like this idea that there are no strict deadlines or anything like that, but I've got a bit of a Jimmy Hill about that one. I think there might be someone somewhere up the flagpole being like, we do have a release date planned for it, so we do need to re uh, hit that release date for these various promotional things we've got planned. It doesn't feel like it is crunch culture. Yet later on in the feature, they do talk about how they often sleep at the office because they work there too long. Yeah, it, it's like it's a difference between, I guess, crunch culture of you have to work you have to stay and finish this and oh i've been working late i'm gonna have a bit of a kip underneath the desk man the amount of jobs i've worked out where i've just thought to myself oh, i could just have a little kip under the office here that'd be great rather than me having to go home because i'm going to go back here at 8 a.m tomorrow anyway and i'm glad i'm not in those jobs anymore i think this is a really really cool feature i mean obviously it's got some domisms at the end there when it's about you know meeting attractive women and stuff but i think for the most part this is played very very straight this is very respectful in terms of just talking about the the magic that these guys create the friendly competition between am1 2 and 3 and and annex it's a really solid feature by games master it's the sort of thing i think i'd like to see more of in games master i don't think we've had enough of these in series six which has been like a really straight laced feature on the makings of video games which granted you know it's not the easiest thing in the world to do but i really really appreciated this one and also i do love the fact that we've got the dom thing of i'm talking to people from another country i should ask them about dates and birds pulling birds and that yeah like if you think back to the visit to the artificial beach and he's like are you here on the pool and again kind of similar vein of questioning at the cosplay thing and it's just a case of old dom old dom he can't help himself but dominic diamond his way out into these situations we do get to see the fruits of their labors if you're a good little am member 
We see a lovely, I mean, that is a lovely looking car that he ends the segment on. A Corvette Stingray, beautiful, but you'll never get to drive the bugger. It'll just be a paperweight. Well, that's it for today's show. Next week sees the final show of the series and weather legend, Mr. Michael Fish will be gracing us with his presence. Um, while you wait for that, I'll leave you with this question. If God had meant man to fly, why weren't we born with a jet engine and in-flight drinks trolley shoved up our bum? Good night. So, Ash, can you believe it? Next week, it's the final episode of Series 6. And as far as I can tell, it's the final episode of Games Master. The, the show is pretty much done for at this point. It's definitely got that end of term vibes to it at the moment. As does Dom's final question. If God had meant man to fly, why weren't we born with a jet engine and in-flight drinks trolley shoved up our bum? I mean, the obvious answer is the spirits on that drinks trolley would be a fire hazard in themselves and should not be that close to a jet engine. Also, in-flight entertainment up your bum is just, you're not going to be able to see it, Dom. You'll have to set up really wacky mirror situations to try and get yourself the good angle. He has not thought this through whatsoever. No. I hope he has a better question for Michael Fish when he comes here next week. That's all I'm going to say. Moving on. <laughs> that was episode 17, and I already know this is going to be a bloody short episode as we've either talked about every game on it already to a degree, or we're going to talk about it again in the future, like Unreal and stuff like that. So with the lack of reviews as well... It wasn't a bad episode, but bloody hell, it went quick. It does fly by because it's really just two challenges. I mean, and I know that that's kind sort of the, you know, has been for all of this series, but without the reviews, that first challenge is massive. It's a massively long challenge. It's a big introduction for it. It's a massively long celebrity challenge in the second half, along with the feature. This is an episode where so much time is put into those challenges, and it's just quite wonderful really because the sort of the overall concept that people have of series six is that the challenges take second place to features reviews and news but this is an episode here that kind of proves that theory wrong this is an episode that is very much challenge based this is a big pilot wing 64 challenge on the brand new n64 we've got a the hot model 2 sega touring cars arcade machine that's being done by am annex like this, these are two big things, and then a wicked feature at the end of this. This feels very challenge, and it's a feature that is there to back up the challenge we've just seen. It is probably the most challenged-focused episode we've had outside of Athlete Kings uh, earlier on in the series. Thankfully, both of the challenges were pretty fun. I wouldn't say that they were top-shelf gold label challenges, but they're definitely both fun challenges with people that mostly know what they're doing that's the thing is some of these challenges like as much as i love talking about tetsujin with mike and you a lot of that challenge was watching kids that didn't have a blues clue at what they were doing and then we had the few right at the end that did but this the air force guys got pilot wings even if one of them kind of biffed it the fact that the the human cannonball guy just got it boom straight away he was good at this game and while, yeah, Touring Car was kind of a bumper side-to-side -side thing, it wasn't the worst racing game we've had. It wasn't the worst racing game we've had this season. No, I actually think a lot of this really does land. And I really, really like the Pilot Wings one. And I think the reason for me why they land so much is they're both really tense and tight. Like that Pilot Wings one comes down to, you know, the last 10 seconds. Had it not been for that time extension in the first round or Jez doing it so well in the Cannonball, 
he would have biffed that third part of it. So you got that aspect. And then in the touring cars one, we didn't really kind of talk about it much, but it's literally the final corner where Martin wins. Yeah, it is bumper cars. It is very much smacking into walls and stuff, but they do really get things down to the wire. So that's two challenges that come right down to the final few moments. So while they're not like the best games playing we, we've seen on, on this series of Games Master or any series of Games Master, I think that they have a nice dramatic flair to them. So I really, really like that. And again, I can't say enough good things about that feature. Really straight-laced Games Master feature about the best arcade division on the planet. I think if I've got one single word that sums up this week's episode to me, it's consistent. The intro, it's not a top-tier intro, but it's good, it's solid, it lands. The banter with the Air Force guys, the banter with Gene, it's good, it's solid, it lands. The linking segments, same thing. The challenges themselves, they're good and they're solid. This is amazingly, for an episode that's falling at this point in the season, remarkably consistent and level. Normally, we're kind of either escalating wildly or... We're the dregs, so just like, you know, the final few bits and bobs that we've got left lying around. You can tell that this is a series that was properly planned. Exactly. Like, there is no, well, we've got a great challenge, but the feature's dreck, or we've got a great feature, but the challenges are just boring and they're kind of sponsored guff. This feels like an episode that was properly paced. We didn't get the reviews... And I'd have loved to have talked about the reviews because there were certainly some exciting games coming out at this time, but we didn't need them. I didn't miss them. Nothing outstayed its welcome. No, and that's the kind of thing that I think surprised me the most recapping this episode for the podcast is that I didn't even notice there weren't reviews in this until we got round to talking about it in this outro here. And I was like, oh yeah, that's right. There weren't any reviews in this episode. We did have the news items, but we didn't have reviews. And that, again, is because so much time is put into that pilot wing challenge. And I'm actually glad that more time was put into that than try and speed through it so we can get Rick talking about a game for a couple of minutes. So what are you thinking score-wise? I don't think it's a 90. Which is weird, isn't it? Because it's a really good episode with really good challenges, but it's not a 90 episode. But I also don't think it's a DeLorean. I think it is a rare beast. It is an 89. Okay, I had it as an 87. I actually did also thought it's not a DeLorean, so I was going to fall either side of it. I think of some of the 88s we've given out recently, and they've been more uneven than this. This is just a case of, this is good, this is great. Yeah, this is solid and consistent, and I'm quite happy with that. And I hope you're happy with this episode of Under Consultation. Thank you so much for listening. You all rule. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at underconsolepod, on Instagram at under.console, and you can send us an email with your feedback to this series to feedback at underconsultation.com. And if you want to give feedback in real time, chat with us, chat with other listeners, chat with other fans of games, both old and new, and all sorts of pop culture, you can do so over on our Discord, details of which can be found in the show notes. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod, where you'll get access to UCP Extra, the show format, but about other shows from the 80s, 90s and 2000s, as well as our monthly community show, Under Console Nation. If you're back to the £5 level, you will get next week's episode, which is the season finale, one week early and ad-free. But Ash, if you back us at the £10 level, do you get anything extra? At the £10 level, you get our under-consultation Patreon pack, which contains a golden joystick waggler mug, which is in itself filled with stickers, badges, retro sweeties and retro trading cards, which we stick 
into a matter transfer with a baboon and we send it through to the other side and the glittery brundle baboon fly that comes out the other end will sneak in through your kitchen window in the middle of the night. And he paid a visit to these £10 backers, Xanderthal, William, Tom, The Amazing Cliff, Super Sexy, David Fisher, Simon, Selena, Sean, Richard, Reese, Retro Fund for Everyone, Nick, Misha, Matty Boo, Mark, Link, Kevin, Jamie, Ian, I Am Cheadle, Harriet Manga Girl, Gordon Dempster, Gordon Brands, David Wright, David Palmer, Critty Two Sticks, Chris, Arcadia Wild Bill, Andrew Cummings, Adam, and Andy. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you in seven days' time for the series finale of Series 6 of Games Master. Take care, everyone. Good night. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.